Shanty Bay Press is a collaboration between Janice Butler and Walter Bashinsky and is located in the country near Shanty Bay, Ontario. It was established in 1996 with the purchase of a first press, a Vandercook SP-15. The press now uses a Vandercook Universal 1 and woodcut illustrations are printed on a double folio Washington iron press. It publishes books in the French Livre d'Artiste tradition, which gives equal weight to the text and the illustrations. Its typographical approach is influenced by early 20th century fine press books, the American designer Bruce Rogers, and the Cranach Press of Count Harry Kessler. I'm here with Walter Bashinsky in Shanty Bay, Welcome to the Bibliophile. Glad to be here. You give equal weight to the text and the illustrations. Mm -hmm. Why do you do that? I'm basically a visual person. I mean, I, I'm doing the illustrations for these books. But to, to, to go to all the trouble of making a book, there has to be a meaningful text. And I'm only attracted to certain kinds of texts. I like classical literature because there's a kind of freshness about the first time that a writer describes certain situations. I'm thinking about Virgil and he's all good now. You but mean that, that no other has author has touched that's, it yet? That's right. It's, it's like the eclogues. I mean, there were some eclogues before uh, Virgil's eclogues, but a lot of the things that are in the eclogues were said for the very first time in our history, in our human history. It's a bit like a baby when we're babies. Yeah. yeah. We encounter all sorts of situations. There is a first time for yeah. everything, right? Yeah. And... The other thing about a classical text, it's lasted, and it's lasted for a reason. When Ovid did his Metamorphosis, he knew right away that it was a, a book that was going to last. He ends it that way by saying something to that effect, and it's been translated you know, into so many different languages, and it's been used by so many artists and operas, you know, plots come up again and again in different kinds of literature. It's just, there's a richness in classical text that really, I just find so appealing, and it's, it's a reason for making a book then. But, but you want to emphasize the illustration to the same degree that you I present. Can't, I can't compete with uh, these classical texts. <laughs> you know what I mean? You right. try, you try, you try and you know, bring whatever skills you've got to illustrate these texts. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to make them equal. You try to make them equal. Yeah. I think Picasso, he did the metamorphosis as well. And I think his line etchings are pretty, maybe not quite equal, but getting pretty close. Yeah, equal in terms of what the, the quality of the work, how important the work is. It's like, are you trying to riff, riff off this brilliant text? Are you going to compete with it or trying to push yourself to that level? I think we'll talk, maybe talk about The Metamorphosis because it's the most recent book. I spent, I spent over a year working on the drawings, for the, so I spent a lot of time you know, thinking about these images, and I spent a lot of time trying to pick the, the stories that I wanted to talk about. There are precedents for illustrating the metamorphosis. Uh, Titian did 16 paintings based on all this metamorphosis. So there's a lot of material, Italian material primarily, about the metamorphosis. So there's, there's a lot of stuff in the air. As I was working out these images, I thought, you know, about maybe using some of that as an influence. But there were other uh, instances like the, the story of Phaeton and Apollo, Historically, artists have shown this chariot falling with the horses all in disarray. And, but I, I chose the moment when Paul realizes that by granting his son 
this wish to ride these horses across the universe that his son is doomed to die. And so there's a kind of, there's a moment there just before he, he starts this journey. With Pygmalion, uh, the story of Pygmalion, I mean, uh, the pre-Raphaelites like that theme a lot. And the French, from the 19th century French academic painters too. And so my, my take on that is influenced by them very much. So sometimes I tried to show it in a way that was never shown before. Other times I just was part of a tradition. But I, I tried as hard as I could to make those illustrations you know, as rich as I could. In a way, you, you know, it's hard to compete with, with all of it. You know, but, you know, it's a challenge. Well, in a way, you're competing with the other artists who yeah. have interpreted art. Right, yeah. yeah. And uh, your hope might be that you'll be in that pantheon. Yeah, yeah. That's what you're trying for. I mean, I don't think about it yeah. that much when I'm doing it, but sure. You want a text that's, that's worthy, that captures your attention, and you choose it because it, because it stimulates your imagination in ways that other texts wouldn't? I think other texts that are more recent would be too specific. And I want a kind of timeless quality in whatever work that I do. So I don't want to tie to a particular period in time. So you may as well pick one that's timeless. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the books are, I mean, we've only done you know, half a dozen books, but four of them deal, deal with classical literature and two deal with the circus. Now the circus is more, more contemporary and the texts are much shorter. And the combination of poetry and, and prose. As far as I'm concerned, I think the circus is over for me. But uh, there are a couple of classical texts that I'm really interested in doing something about. And one is the Daphnis and Chloe, yeah. which has been done already in the, in the 20th century, I think. It's been done at least three or four times, maybe more. I guess the, mo the most recent one was Chagall, Mark Chagall, did the illustrations, but Bonard did, did it. Early in, earlier on in the century, and then Aristide Maillot. So that te text is, is, is amazing. It's the first novel, I guess. Um, I don't think there was anything like that before. It, it's not like a novel. It, it's like a series of visual events that, are, that take place sort of one after the other. And they're so, they're so rich in detail that, I mean, I could see spending a long time you know, trying to work that out. You're focused on this particular text because... What you've loved it over the years, it, it, it's brought up a visual uh, response in you. Well, both. The thing that I notice about these texts, you can read them and read them and read yeah. them. Yeah. And our first book was Virgil's Eclogues, and I had a copy of, I probably had bought a copy of the book maybe 10 years before I actually did the book. So I, I would have this book in the car, and every time I had a moment, I would go over it. I had the C. Day Lewis uh, translation, which is again, I find these classical texts very readable, you know, if, if, if the translator is good. By going over and over, it's it's something you can go over and over, you don't get tired of going over it, whereas yeah. I, don't, I can't read most contemporary things more than once or twice. You felt like you've got everything you, yeah. you want out of it. I'm also interested in the Idols of Theocritus, which is the first pastoral book of poetry. I keep going over that, and keep reading it and reading it, and it's got a a lot of possibilities for illustrations. Now the thing is, in, in both cases, I mean, one of the things that I don't want to do is repeat myself in terms of technique. I've mm. already done, you know, the pochoirs and, and three or four of the book, four of the books, and I, I can't use this photogravure technique again. I don't think, for one thing, it's extraordinarily expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, 
I've been trying to, you know, work out how I want to do it. It's just, but that's the way it is with me. It takes takes time to kind of make a decision about what I want to do. In the meantime, I'm working on this um, Birth of Venus book, which is it'll be mainly mainly illustration, and you know, five or six poems to go with Rob Rilke and uh, D. H. Lawrence. I've got a lot a lot of poetry that I have to sort of choose now what to what to pick. You were born in Ottawa. Born in Ottawa. Were you a reader as a kid? Or yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We, we we still read a lot. Yeah. And what about your parents? Were they? Uh, who were they? <laughs> well, my mother said she had high school, but I mean, my mother and father were childhood sweethearts. My dad went to university. He was a scientist. He ended up in Ottawa working for the research council, yeah. and that's where I was born. But uh, my dad was a he was a researcher. He had an ear for languages and things like that. But I don't remember. I mean, we had books around. I mean, we had kids' books, and I remember really liking to read. That was before television. Yeah. The radio was a big thing, too. But, yeah, I can remember reading from an early age and drawing, and mm-hmm. those two things. I was never very good at writing. I can write, but it takes me a long time to write things. Were either of them uh, artistic? No. no. Mm-hmm. My dad became ill when he was in his 30s. Uh, he became actually a schizophrenic with some sort of... He was working in a lab, laboratory at the, uh, the research council. There was some sort of explosion, and I think he was probably on the verge of a nervous breakdown anyway. But I think there there was a chemical uh, component to schizophrenia, and so he became hospitalized. So at that point, uh, my mother had to kind of drop everything and go out to work. So there, when when you know she found out I wanted to go to art school and everything, I mean this was not good. Yeah, <laughs> she wanted me to go. Their ahead. parents' worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she wanted you to be a lawyer or a doctor so, or someone to make. A... But you know, I got some encouragement. Not so much in high school, but um, interestingly enough, there was a priest whose sister was a good friend of my mother's, uh, who worked at St. Pat's College, a Catholic school, and mm-hmm. merged with the Carlton. Anyway, he was he was sort of into art history a little bit and that kind of thing. So he was encouraging. But then when I went to the, the art college in Toronto, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it was good. You, you made the right decision. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was really... And so how did that influence you? You were in a, in a company of, of like-minded young people, yeah. I guess. Doing a lot of drawing, and uh, I, was, I was really interested in printmaking, mm. making prints. Do you have any idea why? The content. Printmaking, as I understood it, at that time, anyway, and I think there was a general, more of a general feeling, is that printmaking had a kind of edge to it, like a social tent. protest poster. Yeah, a, a kind little of bit, idea. a little bit like that. There's a history of that in printmaking. I mean, there's, um, you see it in Goya, you see it in Katie Collins, you, you know, you see it in a lot of thirties and lithographs yeah. and etchings. Well, you look at, I'm just thinking of the thirties and the Spanish uh, Civil War, yeah. and there's a lot of yeah. interesting graphics that came out of that. Yeah. So you were political. Well, not, not in a kind of, like, I'm a liberal or a conservative right. or an NDP, but content was important. But, but I was, content, like, I don't like the way the world is, I want to change it? I guess the early work, graphics, in my prints, I was looking for certain archetypal images, you know, to represent, say, war or the destruction, that kind of thing. Protesting uh, that. Yeah. And this would have been, again, the 60s, right? Uh, yeah, early 60s, early, early 60s. Uh, and then when I went to Iowa to study uh, with Mauricio Lozanski, he was encouraging in that, and his own work had some of that, for sure. And it was one of the few places that still believed in drawing. 
like a lot of the art schools, they were mainly in universities by then, had thrown out the life model and everything else. Even but, back then? Oh yeah, and, then, yeah. and they were you know, doing many abstractions. Iowa was one of the few places where you could actually go and draw. Drawing was taken very seriously. Kind of classical. Yeah, yeah. sort of expressive classical drawing. And then I ended up at the University of Guelph. Yeah, as a, te- as a teacher. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do to make... I wasn't making any money, you know, making these prints. No. There, was a lot, there were a lot of competitive uh, print exhibitions in those days, and that's how you sort of built your reputation. None of this exists any, any longer. There, a lot of people were making prints as, as a way of making some money. These yes. major print shops that developed in the late 60s and early 70s were printing uh, works by major artists kind of killed a lot of these smaller printmakers. I'm thinking of Tamarad and Gemini and Petersburg Press. and These were these were really interesting print shops, but they would bring in artists like David Hockney and you know Motherwell. And they would do limited... Yeah, that, that printmaking became another kind of thing. It wasn't something that you did in your... In your basement, or like I had a, I had a press. You know, I still have the same press. It just changed. There were galleries that handled prints, mm-hmm. um, so I would I would have a show in Montreal, like I did early on in the seventies, at a gallery that specialized in prints, and they sold a certain number of my prints. And there was a gallery in these were limited runs. You'd yeah, sign just etchings. You signed yeah. them, lithographs yeah. and etchings, woodcuts. Yeah. And there was a gallery in Toronto. You know, where you could, you know, do the same thing. But that's all. That's all disappeared. So, sort of like the, some of these bookstores, in a way. Why do you think it's disappeared? Well, there's still places in the states, you know, like larger centers where you find galleries that um, where they where they sell prints. But the selling of prints is not what it used to be when I was younger. So now it's you know a gallery will have some prints, but they're mainly concerned with selling paintings. And sculpture, right. well, mainly paintings, really things that sit on the wall. You know, yeah, they're the they're unique. Where yeah. the prints, go prints around. are yeah, they're still unique in a way because they each go through the press. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything is different if they're hand wiped. Yes, you know, yes, they're all a bit different, but yeah. So it's yeah, things changed, and I and I slowly changed too. I mean, I, I my work changed, and I became less less concerned with certain kinds of subject matter, and I became more more interested in, in a classical approach to making pictures. Meaning? Meaning, meaning the figure, the human figure, mm-hmm. uh, but not, not trying to use it as a way of you know, making a, a statement about some social right, situation. Right. There wasn't another agenda then. Yeah, just trying to present the, the figure or a still life or whatever it happened to be in a way that I suppose, I'm not sure the word pleasure is the right word, but... I wanted something where people could really spend a lot of time you know, mm-hmm. looking and, and intrigue them yeah, and uh, yeah. excite them, excite them visually, and uh, do the same sort of thing when I'm making these illustrations for the books. And Matisse said it. He said, "I don't," and I, maybe I've said that somewhere too because I, I, quote, I quote him when I when I talk about my work, which is seldom. But he said, "I don't. I, I, I value my books, the books that I've made, the same as my sculpture and my paintings and my drawings." They're all they're all the same, you know. And yet, as you were saying before we started taping this, the books go for a fraction oh, I know. I know. of what the paintings yeah. do, and yeah. yet he values them. Oh no, he took a lot of interest in the typography and the, you know the book design. And yeah. oh yeah, he was hands on when it came to more than more than Picasso. And the the, t- the amount of time that he spent with them was a you know. 
Oh, you see the comparably yeah, longer. Yeah, the one major difference between uh, the, the lots of differences, but Matisse reworked things a lot, mm-hmm. and he would often have photographs taken of his paintings in progress. There might be twenty-four different stages they went through, and the same thing was true about his drawings that he would make etchings from for these different books that he made. They went through a lot of different stages, so he was he reworked. And he was really, when he was working, he would have the text, he would, the text would be printed first. So he was working his illustrations against the text block. So he was, he was right in there. We're a little different. We're kind of doing everything at once in a way. Mm-hmm. We're doing the illustrations and doing the printing. When he was, when he was working on these illustrations, they would go uh, from a very, you know, kind of simplistic kind of thing at the beginning through some very, very complex different variations and end up back, you know, with something fairly... Simple again, right. yeah. but he wanted to make sure that he worked out all the possibilities. He couldn't just keep it simple. He yeah. had to go through the whole process yeah. bef- before he arrived at something he was satisfied, yeah. which just happened to be simple again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you were you were in Guelph. You taught there for quite a few years. Twenty-seven years I was there, printmaking and life drawing primarily. How did that affect your art? Well, it's interesting because when I first started teaching, because there was a real edge to the prints that I was doing, you know, they were they were kind of rough and tough, and you know, I had a, quite a student following. You well, know, what do you mean rough and tough? Well, they were they were confrontational. I mean, the the text was, or the image the was image, in your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah, the image. Yeah, I should give you some of these catalogs of the early. You know, I've got catalogs of all the work. But so what did they what did they look like? If you looked at them, you say, "Well, there's a lot of Goya influence, you know, that right. kind of thing." Yeah. So anger and yeah, anger and and energy and a lot of movement. Pretty intense. There's no other way to describe it. Hmm. Abstract? Uh, no, I always figured I've never I, I've never been able to do anything completely abstract. And was there a message uh, attached? Well, not not as literal as some of these illustrations that I'm doing now, I don't think. But but certainly there would be a feeling there that would be pretty powerful. So I continued to work. I was evolving. I don't. I might have kept a few things I did at the art college. I did, you know, literally hundreds of prints and drawings and paintings and God knows what. But most of it I destroyed over time because I didn't think it was very good, yeah. and I don't think it was very good. And but I'd be, I'd be curious to see some of it. Visual artists take time. They're not like poets. Poets are, you know, often they'll do their whole life's work before they're It'll be in notebooks anyway, you know, you know, in their teen years. But most visual artists don't mature until they're well into their thirties, or unless they're, you know, a genius. But uh, most of us have to work a long time to get anywhere. Well, you did a lot of traveling too. You yeah. went to Mexico and checked out the murals there. Yeah, that was early on, and that's when I was really interested in content. Particularly, liked Orozco. He was the most probably the most emotional of the of the three major Mexican muralists. And I so I made a made a point of going to Guadalajara to see all his that's that was his hometown. But he did a lot of mural decoration there. But Mexico City, there's there's a lot of stuff around in Mexico City. Siqueiros and Rivera. Um, but Orozco was the one that I really admired the most because he was probably the most influenced by Goya, in my estimation the most talented but, you know, too. The most knowledgeable about composition. And I guess I was interested. In, I was interested in content, but I guess the thing that I've always been the most interested in is how do you put things together? You know, how do you make things? Um, the composing part. What, and, what does that mean? Well, it's like it's like music in a way. Um, you have different elements, visual elements, and you have to bring them together in a way that requires a fair amount of time for the viewer to kind of 
understand. There has to be there has to be something immediate for the viewer to look at, and then there has to be an unfolding. So they have to sort of grab time. their attention. You have to get their attention somehow. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you're in what's the use? <laughs> Try and bring them in. That became you know more and more the focus of my travels. The later travels were mainly in France. Mm-hmm. Germ- well, early on in Germany, but France. France was the the turning point probably in, in my life. I spent a year in France in the, in the yeah. 70s. How's it a turning point? Well, I, can, I did a series of drawings, big drawings, big black and white drawings that I called the Revelations, which are all about, you know, sort of like the Revelations, <laughs> furious drawings. After doing maybe a, a dozen of these over a period of years, they're you know, big and complex and everything else, and doing a lot of sculpture at the same time, I finally had... Whatever it was that I wanted to say with those, I, I, I didn't want to say anymore. It was sort of, I had emptied myself of that. What did, what did you want to say? It had to do with these archetypal images that I was working with. They're like forces of destruction and one thing and another. When you made these, did you want to, did you want to sell them? I mean, did you want to be, a great, did did you want to be a great artist, like, like Picasso? No. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think you know it's at a certain point whether you're going to be a great artist or not. I think you have to be, you know, are, are you going to be an innovator or whatever. I, I knew that pretty early on. You knew that you were you had skill and talent? I had, I had something. That you weren't going to bust open the world of... That's well, right. even though Andy Warhol can do it, any, yeah. anyone can do it, right? Well, that's true. well you know... But, Maybe I yeah. shouldn't say that. But. <laughs> I mean, I knew that I had, I had a certain... I'm not sure if you want to call it a gift or not, but... So mm-hmm. if you know you have something, then that's what you work on. You work on what you've got. And what did you have? Well, one of the things I had, I had, I found slowly that I had this ability to compose, you know, to bring things together. Well, so, now, again, sorry, I don't so, want to be in okay. pain here, but bring things together. Okay, so bring what does th- that mean? You, you can, okay, so you could, if you have a rectangle, yeah. you can put certain things in that rectangle, and they can be very static. You know, there's no no movement. Yeah. But if you can sort of bring things together where the spaces around the objects are are very important as well as the objects themselves, and there's a tension created by how you place things and how you move them, then then I think you're starting to get into composition. Mm-hmm. Like there's so there's a there's a. the it's dynamic. Like, it's like it's, like it's sort of if you think of it like music. Not that there, I don't think there's a real relationship, but like you, you're putting together things uh, in a musical composition. A lot of repeats, mm-hmm. um, a lot of changes in direction and, and changes in intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, but all That's the time, good. you're 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 trying to create. The, I guess I slowly. I guess in my thirties, it was starting to happen. Um, I was able to to start bringing things together in a way that was maybe more purely visual than relying on these obvious sort of illustrative aspects of the work. Yeah. Right. So it became less illustrative. Yeah. And I'm actually trying to do that in a way with the books, but it's a little it's a little different because you do have the text to relate to. <laughs> yeah. But whereas with the work that I'm doing that's not related to a text, then I think I was able to. Do you want to cleanse it of all the? The extra, um, what, the baggage that yeah, might come with that Something like that, image? yeah. Well, there's an expression they use at art school. It's getting the shit out of your system, you know. Okay. <laughs> <Something>. <laughs> they use that elsewhere, don't they? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Going through that process, you yeah. end up producing some pretty interesting work, and I did, I did sell quite a bit of it, but uh, it wasn't the work I wanted to do anymore. 
you, do, you don't you want to try and flush your system of all the the various influences that, that well not influences but I don't know if you can ever or or what extra artistic yes, uh, yeah that's right influences it's hard to get away from all influences um, because I'm constantly studying you know these artists that I love and, and the way they put things together and I've made a point of looking at the work too you know yeah. I've gone to Russia I've gone to you know where I have all the great Matisse's and and the uh, the Hermitage. The Hermitage, yeah. The primitive circular dance. Are you talking about the Matisse? The Matisse. Yeah, oh well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, well, the one's called the dance, the other's called music. Very much, I see those in your work. Yeah. Flat, brilliant color. Why have you settled on that method or mode? The, the reason for that kind of um, color and shape, that's an emotional response. It's not a rational response. It's, mm. Now, they took it to extremes in the early part of the 20th century, and things have changed a lot since then, but like Matisse himself, if you talk to him, it would be like talking to a professor. He was very detached when he spoke, mm. but when he was working, it was completely different. Like, he was responding emotionally. And so, that, that brilliant wow factor. Yeah, yeah. Like, in his own evolution, he, he changed quite a bit, too, over time. I guess as we all do. Yeah, so that was around my late 30s is when I... And became probably more of a classical artist. Can you define that? It gets difficult because there's this emotional c component to it, but there's also a balance, uh, and then there's a kind of off balance. You you want people to feel comfortable, and then you don't you don't want them to feel comfortable all the time. You want to sort of knock them off balance. If you look at a Roman copy of a Greek bronze, that's a certain sort of classical look. But then if you look at a Greek bronze, you're looking at the original. There's something different about it from mm. the from the copy. So. I think of Ezra Pound. You know, you're respecting tradition, but you're making it new. There's that tension. Yeah. I think the other thing is that a, a classical work, I think, you know, I mean, I'm trying for this. I don't know whether I'm always successful, but a truly classical work will hold your attention. If you look at a German Expressionist painting, you probably won't look at it very long. But if you look at a, an expressive painting by somebody like Matisse from the teens, which is, you know, beyond the period that you were talking about with the dance and music, you're looking at a fairly complicated, multi-layered work, just as expressive as the Germans, but it'll hold you for for hours. <laughs> you know, and, there's and a, why is that? It's the layering. It's the it's just it's the knowledge you know that he brings to it. I mean, he was extremely he studied. I mean, if you were a painter in Paris in the late part of the 19th century, you made your money by copying paintings in the Louvre. And those paintings they had to be good copies because they were bought by provincial museums. So this is one way you made money and learned how learned your craft. So he was he was extraordinarily knowledgeable about how to how to put things into a picture. German expressionists weren't really trained; they weren't schooled in the same way. I mean, I, I use I use Matisse as, a, as an example of somebody who's probably the best, the most knowledgeable, the has the most ability, the best eye, the, the brightest. And so you, I mean, what you're aiming for as a Canadian, <laughs> you know, you're aiming for a little bit of that in that tradition. As a Canadian. Well, that's where, I mean, I'm here. Yeah. I, I had a chance, you know, when I left Iowa, I could have stayed in the States. I had an offer uh, in the States. I came back here. I wasn't I wasn't really developed, you know, as an artist. Or but you felt that Canada offered a kind of a blank canvas because... It was, that's exactly what it was. At Guelph, University of Guelph, when I went there in 1967, I had become a university just two years earlier that had been an agricultural college yeah. almost a hundred years before that yeah. but what the agricultural college was a well I guess you would 
call it like a finishing school for women. It was called MacDonald College. But MacDonald College had an art department and a drama department and an English department. When I went to Guelph, they said, we're just starting this department. If you want to set up a print shop and just build it the way you want, you know. We'll... Right. But, so, but uh, this is Canada, though. You might have had that opportunity somewhere else, but what, I didn't have how it. was it about Canada? that? Well, that was the year that Trudeau oh. sent everybody a letter. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> that was the year of Expo. <laughs> yes. So I had a, you know, I had a way of, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not patriotic, I don't think. Well, what's interesting is that, because that's the same thinking that the group of seven had. Yeah. Like they went over, uh, Lauren Harris went to Berlin. Yeah. MacDonald may have gone to Paris uh, or England, but the idea was to, okay, that's great, but we want, we want to bring that. Yeah. We want a, a Canadian version of that because Canada is different. We've got like a dangerous wilderness <laughs> that needs to be interpreted in our own way. Did, yeah. Is that what you were talking about? Or no, not really? well, not really. I'll tell you what happened. The head of the department at that time was a fellow called Gordon Cooling. He's been dead a long time. And he had a really strong interest in stone architecture. And around Guelph and Fergus and Allure and all these places, there was a lot of really, really interesting stone architecture. And so when I went for the interview, he drove me around and we talked. And he took me to Alora and he took me to Rockwood, these different places. And he showed me all these houses and buildings. I mean, <laughs> that was it. I figured this was a part of the world I knew nothing about. Never been there. Yeah. I'd never been west of Toronto, really. So the actual, the solid, uh, not quite sculpting, but in the same yeah. area, right? Yeah. yeah, and it was uh, a growing university, a lot of young faculty that were yeah, just hiring yeah. them like crazy. Okay. In those days, I had a lot of freedom, too, as a faculty member. Pretty exciting. And, and then working at a university then was not that hard. So <laughs> I had a lot of time. Yeah, it was good. It sounds like, you know, that you had a pretty decent life going here, like... Not not blessed, but it when sounds I think pretty ba- darn good. When I think back, was, yeah. When I think back, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Now I learned a lot from my American fellow students because they were all going off to work in small liberal arts colleges all across the states, you know, teaching art and art history. Yeah. And that's how they were all going to get by until they made enough money from their artwork to give it all up. Okay, right. <laughs> to do that, it took you a while then. But yeah. maybe you didn't want to do that. Like you're happy teaching. Well, no, I wanted to. I wanted to live off my work, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was speaking with Walter Bashinsky, who's the partner in Shanty Bay Press in Shanty Bay, uh, Ontario. So when did this desire or interest in books start? Well, I've always, I mean, I've always collected books, but, you know, mainly books on art and that kind of thing. But I would think probably it would have been... The desire to make your own. Okay, that probably started, I would say, early 90s. So that late? That late, yeah. I had collected uh, these facsimiles and everything before, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. You collected them because you wanted to learn about the techniques that all these different artists used. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, see how a good, really beautiful book was put together. And And that's always been an interest. Yeah. So, and I guess in the late 80s, uh, when I was getting all these kids from OCA that wanted to make books with me, and because they were actually doing these things. Now, they weren't making traditional books. They were doing, you know, more of the kind of books that, you know, a lot of younger people in the book arts make. You know, there's not that much emphasis on text. Were they really books? I don't know if they were yeah. books or not. Yeah. Not, not the books that I, I was going to end up making. They didn't use traditional uh, art, book arts no. uh, methodology. Then. But they all knew about letterpress. They had done letterpress at OCA. It got me thinking a lot, you know, yeah. about, about that. Even before I stopped teaching, I started working on a series of etchings. 
I was going to make a book and I was going to call it The Mediterranean because that's where a lot of my, my influences have come from. But I had no text. I mean, I still have the plates and everything. But I had been reading that Virgil's Eclogues. So in 1996, we, we bought a press and we just started making that book. We no training, no nothing. Well, we did the thing with Chrisman and Jan. But that was after we started the book. <laughs> so you barged into it, and then you said, okay, maybe we should... Janice had gone to OCA to do a, a little bit of letterpress stuff, and then she went over to England to work with Claire Bolton for a week. That's great, though. Was there a moment when you said, okay, let's, I've got this idea, I've already, let's make a book. Yeah, it was something like that. We had to redo everything, you know, I don't know how many times. <laughs> now, the illustration part worked out really well. And I remember John Randall came and he said, this is our first book, so the type, the type, the... The printing is not that great. But we sold it out. But the edition wasn't very big. John Randall said to me, he said, these are so wonderful, these illustrations. He said, if you ever decide just to print the illustrations, I'll buy one. <laughs> and then the second book we made was the circus book, and that sort of made our reputation. Really? Kind of yeah. Serious yeah. Know, book people. But, but we made so many mistakes on that first book. A lot of it had to do with the printing. Printing is not easy. I mean, I had been a printmaker, so I knew, you know, about printing, but printing type is a bit different, you know, and the machines are different. And What's so difficult about it? In printing and etching, variation is allowable. You know, you can leave a bit of ink on the, on the plate, you know, or as Whistler used to do, you know, or you can wipe it real clean. With, with printing, a lot of printing is mechanical, but you don't want it to be mechanical. You want it to be, you know, just a bit better than that. But to get to that, level what does that mean a lot of it's mechanical you want it better than that it has to be alive no when you're printing with lead lead type you know there's a there's a bite that goes into the paper and mm. everything like that so you don't want too much ink on there because it's going to look lousy whereas a, a etching is more forgiving etching is a lot yeah a lot more forgiving okay. yeah yeah yeah, there's certain printers that print cold and they feels cold so what's cold mean it means maybe the paper's too white Maybe the ink is too cold. I mean, black comes in many different forms. You know, Peter Koch. Heard of him, Okay, yeah. well, he's an amazing printer. He has a press. I, when I look at his sheets, it's cold. It's too mechanical. Still don't get that. Okay. It doesn't look like there's a human touch to it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. In other words, it's too uniform? Maybe, yeah, something like that, yeah. If you're into making books... You know, using type, which is imperfect in itself. Each piece is a little bit different. Like, we don't have our sheets, our type uh, pages set by Bixler. I mean, he, he, we use Bixler type, but we use one piece at a time. When Bixler prints, it's, it's not cold. It's, it's warm. You'd have to see one beside the other. It's a choice that Peter's making, uh, not on all his books, but when he does a classical text, I find it a bit cold. But it's still really, really good printing. Like, he's still up there <laughs> so just so i'm clear then if it's cold and mechanical everything's too lined up it's too square or as if it's too if it's warm and less mechanical it's uh, there's maybe uh, the, the line is isn't quite flush or it's well no we want we want all that you want, you want all that we want all that yeah okay but given the nature of the uh, of the material that you're working with. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be like a machine-made product. Now, the thing is, you can make your books, you know, look that way. Yeah, because you're so good, you're such a perfectionist, Yeah, that it'll look, <laughs> yeah. it'll look mechanical, which is oh. maybe what you, maybe what you do want. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a bit of, it's like taste. It's probably taste, yeah. 
Do you have an example of what you think is the greatest book ever printed? Well, probably the greatest book might be the Book of Kells or something that wasn't even printed. But no, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think uh, early books are really amazing. Yeah. Uh, the early books before the invention of type, but uh, really, really amazing. And I'm kind of interested in the period within, the, I guess, the first 50 years of the use of type where the illuminators were still working on books. So you'd have uh, this combination of illumination and type. And then the woodcuts take over after a while. But I guess it was mainly in Italy where this happened. The quality of the artists were working on these illuminations. Now, they weren't huge. They were small, usually rectangular. The artists that were making these illuminations to go along with the, the type were amazing artists. They were really good. They were like well-known painters. Mm. So there's just a short period in time. And then the woodcuts you know, all the other processes sort of take over. Okay, I want to, I want to get into the, your work specifically. Mm -hmm. So well, the first book was Virgil's Eclogues. Yes. With uh, with the lino cut, uh, two-color lino cut illustrations. In that first book, I realized that there had to be a kind of rhythm to the illustrations. So there, there are quite a few lino cuts. I think there's something like 23. And they vary. There's a rhythm to the illustrations in terms of the color intensities. There's a pattern of the pale against the, the, the intense colors. And then there's a, a, a kind of play with the simple images with the complex. As you, as, so as you go through the eclogues, as you read it, there's a change that's taking place as you go along. I, I, I found that the, the pacing of the illustrations was really important. So I, wanted to, I didn't want it to be the same all the way through. I wanted this kind of rhythm to, to take place. Like, we had lots of time to work it out because we kept having to, I didn't go back and type, print, print the same page again. Mm, yes, <laughs> because, because it's so difficult to get it right. Yeah. Right? yeah. So yeah. so that was that was the first book. Well, it just about killed us, but right. and we had a lot of fights and uh, arguments. And, it was kind of like renovating a house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the second book was a circus <laughs> book, and it was a big book. So we got another press. We got a big press. There were just five poems in this book. The major poem... In the book is a Rilke poem, the fifth uh, duono elegy, and it's about a painting, a Picasso painting. It's called The Family of Saltonbanks. And Rilke actually spent six months of his life with the owner of that painting in the, in the house, living there, you know, as a guest. And so he had a lot of time to think about this painting, and he composed this amazing poem. And so that was going to be the central part of the book, and then I, I had two, actually, two pochoirs for that, and then... I started the whole the book out with D.H. Lawrence. Um, did I, you replicate the painting? No. You didn't? No. But I did take one. I took a, there was a, a, a vase of flowers right. and the painting that I put in the pochoir. Yeah. Because you, you want to have some connection. Oh, yeah. And then, you know. and then uh, he makes reference to the letter D. These figures are standing in a D, sort of like a D, you know. <laughs> and I have the letter D in the pochoir. Uh, so there's vase of flowers and these. So there's a, there's you know there's there's the references yeah. that, uh, but you mean you want if I'm reading that yeah. I'm gonna want to see the original. Yeah, aren't I? Yeah, and I and and uh, yeah and and most people know the original. Yeah, it's in Washington. Yeah, and I and the poem starts out who are these vagabonds or whatever, and I've got these two kind of uh, Harlequin like figures. So there's a you know pretty direct reference to um, Picasso, not a particular one, but just there but I start out the book with uh, a fairly simple poem a kind of uh, when I went to the circus by D.H. Lawrence and it's you know it's uh, 
he's kind of laying down the law of the, you know, the, uh, like we're sort of nervous about circus people, you know, who are these circus people, you know, we, and he's, he's sort of contrasting the kind of uh, clean living people that go to the circus with <laughs> the circus. Well, and, it, and <laughs> of course that the, the comparison there is between, you know, your regular citizen and yeah. the artist, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that the the, the 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 circus performer um, is is the artist. Yeah, yeah. Do you did you is that why you picked this? Is that that? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I had I had a, at that point I was gathering a lot of material about about the circus, and the reason I got onto the circus in the first place was that it was in my other work in my pastels. I was making pictures. Of the circus, so that that kind of. Were you doing it because because Picasso did it, or are you doing oh, it? Maybe, be- uh, but I always liked the circus. I mean, I, I used to go to the Cirque Soleil when it was more like a circus right. <laughs> when it first started. But then yeah. I remember going as a kid, and you know, all through my life, and when I was in France, going to these different circuses. So, and what was it? What was the fascination? Well, uh, I like this. I like. I always like the smaller ones. You know, like like uh, not family circuses, but. Where, where it's all kind of approachable, you know, yeah. when, when it's, um, well, it was always kind of a, uh, I found it sort of mysterious in a way, you know, especially as a kid. Um, like like mysterious, uh, I, I want to be part of it? Uh, I don't know I if don't... I ever wanted to run away with the circus or anything like <laughs> that, but it was a, it, it was, was a, it was, an, it was exciting and it was an expression, you know, that was different from, from my own, um, an escape, kind of. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah, there's part of that. Okay. And then the thrill of maybe seeing something not work out or something go wrong. I think that's probably one of the reasons why people are attracted to. I remember these motorcycle guys, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, yeah. That's. I mean, speaking of motorcycles or yeah. car races, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's kind of a morbid curiosity yeah. Yeah. too, right? Yeah. I mean, in fact, you speak of Cirque du Soleil, someone just died. But somebody right? just died, yeah. yeah. And I like their. I mean, I remember them early on when they when the tent was much smaller and uh, yeah, and yeah. and probably they took more risks back then because there wasn't all this. Concern. Well, they took a lot of risks, especially with the audience, because <laughs> they had they would they would involve the audience a lot right. more too, yeah. But with fire and you know, just getting them up there, you know, doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm glad I was never picked, but. But, uh, well, that's interesting. So, uh, so do you think that uh, that's always been a thread in your? Uh... Well, it has been up until now. I think I've kind of worked. I'm not like I, um, I, I, I got as much material as I could. Um, what other poems did you use? Oh, okay. So I ended up with a Kenneth Koch poem um, about the circus, which he said he thought was probably his best poem. I actually got to talk to him a bit before he died. Uh, and then I used two Canadians. I used Gwendolyn McEwen, which was a great poem, and it, it had, to, had to do with uh, these acrobats. So I guess she had this fiery relationship with her with her husband, or the guy she was with. It was so it's a kind of there's a rawness to it. P.K. Page, yeah. So two Canadians. What uh, what poem? Puppets. Have, she's a, a a superb poet. Yeah. Yeah, she's no longer with us, but no. but uh, she lived a long time. Did you talk to her about it? Yeah, I talked to her. Yeah, she wanted she wanted to know about the technique and everything because mm. she had never she wasn't aware of it, the pochoir. So we talked a bit on the phone. And, so you've exercised that. Then. I guess so, and not in the same way that maybe I I did 
my earlier black and white work, but as I become older and older and maybe relate more to, you know, the natural world, I just, I just find I want to deal with imagery that's more pastoral, you know. So that's what, that's what I see now. And why did you want to put it into a book? There, there is a freedom to put whatever you want into a book, whereas the art gallery world is a little different. It's satisfying something in me, obviously. I want to do this, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's not like I'm making a lot of money doing this. <laughs> That's right. We were talking about that, yeah. right? Yeah. You can sell a work of art that maybe takes a, a week to produce yeah. for ten times what it takes three years oh, to there's make. No comp- yeah, there's no... I would show probably, you know, in the past, you know, once a year, once every two years, something like that. So if I do a book every three years, it's like having an exhibition, you know... I see it as an exhibition in a yeah, way, yeah. the work that goes into it. But obviously I wanted to do it, and there's been, you know, pretty good feedback. Not always, you know, 100%, but that doesn't matter. I, I don't I don't care about that so much. I see the book as a kind of, I said, you know, at one point it's a polychrome relief sculpture. So I see it because it has substance. The book has got weight to it. It's got a form. It's rectangular. I mean, there's something there, you know. <laughs> It's got color, even if it's black and white, it's still, you know, got color. So it's polychrome. And I don't believe in really adding a lot. I don't do pop-ups or anything like that, or, you know, I don't want to stick things in. That's why I went through all this trouble with this guy in Massachusetts with these photogravures. I would send him the sheets, and he would send them back, and registration was difficult. You have to bind it in a book to the same yeah. page size, etc. right? Yeah, so the good thing about Deckled Edge is there's a little bit of play there. You know, that was a collaboration that lasted over a year of the printing of those images. Yeah, so all of this pain, or maybe it's not pain. The pain comes from mistakes that you make, you know, usually in getting things right, you know, like getting the words, the text right, and make yeah. sure you got things in order. <laughs> yes. That's the pain. Right. There's not much pain in, in working out things. There's frustration sometimes if things don't happen right away. But then I worked on those drawings for the metamorphosis for a year, and, and the same, same thing is true about these other books. I would spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, how I wanted to, to make the illustrations. But that's just, I mean, that's my working process. I, I spend a lot of time kind of well, going over things. And I would think that it's something you obviously love to do. Like, you wouldn't want to do anything else, so it really isn't a pain. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what else could I do? Yeah. <laughs> and then tell me about the satisfaction, then, of having the final product. Like, what's that like? Well, that's not, that's okay. I mean, it's nice. You become more and more detached after a while. It's hard to look at it sometimes when you finish it because you know there's flaws and one thing or another. And, and so it takes a while to kind of appreciate the book that you've done. It, it takes it takes a while before you can actually look at what you've done and see it for what it is. Now, other people don't have that problem because they didn't make it. You know, they just look at it and they can make an assessment. But if you've actually been involved with the process over, you know, two or three years... When I go through the earlier books, I see, like on the first one, I see the printing flaws, but only on the first one. Um, the, the others, the, the printing keeps getting better, you know, it gets better and better, because we, we print a lot. Like, we don't put out little books, there's a lot of text and everything. The first book, I think you're allowed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's right. Well, so, speaking of the, the number, then, we're, we move on to... The Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite. We wanted to do a little book after the, after the circus book, which was a big book. Yeah, there's the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, which has three pochoirs and, and two colored woodcuts. And then there's the Georgics, which has the pochoirs and the black and white woodcuts. And then there's Ovid's Metamorphosis, with the photograph years. So... 
you continue to do this because you keep getting better at it to the point where you want to look at something and say, I didn't do anything wrong with that. Oh, well, no, I, no I, don't, I don't think. I think, I think when you're working, you want, to, you want to work on something until you can't work on it any longer. Yeah. You know, you can't make it any better than you can possibly make it, but there's probably ways of improving it. <laughs> you right. know. Any satisfaction comes in as you're, as you're working things out, I think. That's sort of the way it is with me. Okay. Um, and then when you're done with it, yeah, then you start bringing you know some objectivity to it. I mean, you have to be objective when you work things out too. I mean, there's this sort of play be- between you know being emotional and you know being expressive and also being very detached. It's yeah, it's a complex process as you work things out. But yeah, and then you have to sell it. Oh yeah, well, that's the hard part about the book because in the art world, somebody else does the selling. Right. I've always had dealers in the book world. Um, as it turns out. The person that makes the book is the one that does the selling. So some of us are better than others at that. So I use book dealers whenever I can, and I've built up a number of contacts and institutions. But the days of standing orders are they're, they're gone pretty well. I mean, I have some, but... Um, I don't know about subscribers. Yeah. It's not like it used to be. I'm hearing this from other people too, you know. So in other words, you did, you couldn't guarantee that 20 of them would be sold right off the bat to libraries all across North America. I think Jan and Crispin probably, you know, can guarantee a certain number, but they're, like, they don't go to Oak Knoll anymore because they don't sell there. You know, it's, and they're starting to maybe think about maybe not making their books in so large editions, and uh, so there's, you know, it's changing, but still people are attracted to, people still want to make books, and I, and I would say that it's like around the turn of the last century, or maybe before with the arts and crafts movement and all that kind of thing. I mean, if you look at trade books from late 19th century, they're not very good. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you've got these, we've got William Morris and Doves and all these people, and all of a sudden you're, they're making books like God. They're unbelievable. So the same thing may be happening again, because if you go to these book fairs, you see a lot of interesting books. Now, the only difference is that a lot of these books that are extremely well-made and well-designed and beautifully crafted don't pay a lot of attention to the text so the number of people that are actually making Sorry, don't pay attention to the content yeah. or to the way the text is presented or not or maybe they don't have much content or much text they're more like book structures yeah it's not a it's not really a book it's a, it's a it's a piece of art it's a piece of art now i think a book can be, be a work of art with text <laughs> it yeah. better be yeah i mean i think there's Tons of examples of them. There's a lot of interest in the book arts. I there mean, really seems to be, especially I mean, in the states. It's just going crazy. They, I mean, they're they're setting up book arts programs everywhere. You know, the study of the book as yeah. object, the yeah. history of the book, huge number of programs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it seems to be a real growth yeah. area in academia. Yes, oh, no, U of T is pretty good that way. Yeah, that was Richard London. But in terms of how that translates into you selling books, well, I, I mean, it's a struggle. But we're, you know, the thing is. It's a struggle, you know, to sell them, and it takes a lot of effort. I, I mean, that whole table upstairs is, I've got folders, I email people, I write them letters. I decided to take the summer off from doing that, but I know I have to get back to it in the fall, which is starting tomorrow, I guess, the day after <laughs> September. <laughs> right. I might put it off. But, I, you know, I have to do it, and I have to use booksellers, and I have to put more books out on consignment. But, like, we have sold out of books, too, you know, so Good. it's not like it's yeah. made money from this thing. But, but when, I, when I have an exhibition, I usually do better, but... But also, you know, I did teach, so I've got money coming in from that. Janice taught art at Georgian College. You know, she's not teaching any longer, so 
like we have to worry about it, you know, a certain amount, but we don't worry about it to the point where we're going to lose a lot of sleep over it. You know? Good. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's too important for us to, I'll let Janice speak for herself when she, you know, when you have her, but, but I, I really like doing this, you know. Yeah. And they say there is a tradition about handmade books and everything that they don't get destroyed usually. And they'll last for hundreds of years. They'll last for yeah. a long time, yeah. Yeah, 500 yeah. years. Yeah. Just in winding down, I wonder if we could uh, change gears here, because I, I'm thrilled to learn that you're, you know, that you've got the collecting bug. Yeah. First of all, you as a collector, mm -hmm. what are you after? What do you, what, what do you love? What am I? See? What do you love to have, and what do you want to have? Okay. Well, I love, I love books with illustrations by Aristide Maillot, and there are only a couple now that I. That I want. I want to get his Ovid's The Art of Love, and that's going now for about twelve thousand dollars, which I don't really have. <laughs> that uh, David Jones, I have his The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the copper engravings. And he did he did a couple of other books with wood engravings that I covet. So I'm really interested in David Jones because, first of all, he's one of the most original English artists of the 20th century, in, at least in my estimation. I mean, he's not that well known in Canada, but certainly in, this, in, in, in England, he's he's well known, and I guess probably had a better reputation, you know, during the thirties and the forties and the fifties. He was championed by you know Rothenstein, who was running the you know the, I guess either the Tate or the National, I can't remember mm -hmm. at the time. But I mean, he was at that point he was up there. He was a poet and an illustrator. Well, he became a he became a. a Poet in in parentheses, I think made him famous, which is about the um, First World War experiences. Odin thought that was the best epic poem of the 20th century. It's hardly thought of. Yeah. But the writing came after he started out as a visual artist, and this is the thing about the rhythm of illustrations. I guess in his illustrated books, there's a real play between, you know, like the first and the last, and the second and the second last, and all this kind of moving right. back and forth. So you really do need to pay attention to... Yeah, the sequence, I think. But the way that he would structure these illustrations eventually ended up the structure of his poetry. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to... I'm reading about it, but I, I can't really... I can't see it yet. But it's... Obviously, it's there. And I'm, I'm really attracted to his illustrations. I, I don't know why. I just, I just really like them. So I'm trying to get the books, the, the, you know, some of these books. They're getting to be expensive. I Anything else that you're it. after? There, there are a couple of Chagall books, early ones, like The Seven Deadly Sins. Now, we bound that for somebody. We, a friend of ours bought that. We sort of rebound it. So I had a chance to look at these dry point etchings. It's, it was a trade printing, so the, the printing is not very good. But uh, the book itself is a design, the cover, and the title page, and these illustrations are pretty pretty special. Um, I'd, I'd probably get a, a few more Gehenna books I have. Some of theirs. Baskin. Yeah. yeah. Leonard Baskin. Antonio Francesconi. Francesconi. He's a woodcut artist. I have a couple of the smaller books with text. Uh, uh, as good a woodcut artist as there is in, uh, in the States, anyway. Now, these are woodcuts, not, not wood engravings. And he published these under his own press? or these? Yeah, he did. But he did. One of his books was published by the Museum of Modern Art with original woodcuts. Often the texts were printed by, you know, other he didn't print the text, he always printed the woodcuts. But he designed, he always did the total design. I hope that I can buy a book with some Picasso prints, but, you know, 
probably that it's not going to happen. And the Mallarmé book that Matisse illustrated with line etchings that would cover that is probably you'd have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get it. But it's it's one of the most beautiful books I think that's ever been made. Um, What's the title on that? Uh, just po uh, posies. Okay. It was illustrated by, by Matisse. Um, when was that published? In the early 30s, and actually these two books are fairly similar. Ovid's Metamorphosis came out either the year before. I think Ovid was published by Segura and Matisse by... Anyway, I mean, those were... Those will never happen. But yeah. Those were, those were, if, I, if I had the money. Okay. But within my price range, I can afford Gehenna. I can afford... Uh, probably I'll get the David Jones for sure. Yeah. Just finally, what about your advice to a collector, someone who loves beautiful books, mm -hmm. just starting out, doesn't have a huge amount of money, what could they acquire that's really, really good for not a huge amount of money? Well, there are a lot of things, actually, yeah. I mean, at these book fairs, there's lots of really interesting material for not not very much money. Like yeah. what, though? Is there some, something that stands well, even out? The, well, even if you take Jan and Crispin, their books are not expensive. I mean, they're ingrained editions. I mean, if you just if you just want a well put together, a beautifully printed book, they're ingrained editions. They're not very expensive. They're two, three, four hundred dollars, yeah, yeah. maybe. I mean, I've got at least three or four of them, and they seem to be extremely reasonable. Okay. We were talking about limited edition. Now that's not quite fine press, but there's some wonderful stuff oh. in there. I got a, I got a, I got a whole bunch of them. Is there okay. anything sort of within that output? Because some, are, some are okay, Expensive. some are really great. Charles and Cressida. Is this the whole series of Shakespeare? Yeah. Because I've got, yeah. I've got a couple of those yeah, too. Yeah, this is the Charles and Cressida. This was done around the nineteen thirty or yeah. right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a whole run of them. Yeah. With like Graham Sutherland is one of them. Yeah, no, the, I mean that that would be that would be something to do, something to get. Because, why? Wait, I mean, it's all letterpress printing. Yeah. And, and not always, but quite often the illustrations are original prints. Like, I try to get the ones that have the original prints. How do you know that? Well, you have to read. If you can get a hold of a, of a prospectus. Uh, prospectus you, of the series? From the limited editions club, club. itself. And so you get those because... Great value for money. A typographical masterpiece like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are considered to be by, well, especially people like this Jerry Kelly, who's an amazing typographer himself, to be classics in their field. And so it's nice to have a classic around. Right, so yeah. that you, again, can use that as a touchstone. That's exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, it's like it's a working tool in a way. It's funny, though, people kind of turn their noses up at that, the, the limited editions. Or There's different ones, though. There's Heritage, and there's... Well, that's different. That's though. not so good, right? That's not, that's not limited. No. I mean, the thing about Limited Editions Club, I mean, it's only limited to maybe a thousand, but that's... Still quite a bit. But when you think about trying to put that together, you know, I think of those two homers I've got, the amount of work that went into those books, and I got them for under $100 each. I mean, it's just... And I, I, you know, I mean, that was the book that sort of guided us for the Georgics in terms of the page. Published by the Limited Editions Club. Yeah, and it was a Dutch... 19... In the 30s, I think. Okay. Yeah. Elskadai? Yes, I think so, yeah. That sounds to be a terrific yeah. collecting area. And books about books, I collect. About how books are made, how they're designed, that kind of thing. I have books on typography, book history. If, if people are collecting books... 
they should at least have a you know like just a book collector's dictionary or whatever they call it. Yeah, them, ABC. Know. Yeah, I think booksellers are, are are probably pretty good people to talk to. Yeah, maybe librarians too, but. I don't think every librarian loves books. <laughs> well, they love books, but they don't want other people to touch them, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think a guy like Richard was passionate about Richard books. Landon, yes. I totally agree. That the next person that they hire as the head of the Library and Archives Canada should be a passionate book lover oh. and collector, him or herself. The, this is what keeps the whole field alive well, and if you was, don't have that then then it just sort of languishes like well, it is now And I, when I started out I had contact with them they would buy two of everything that we did one for the full price one for half price <laughs> they had a whole department or a whole area for what they call leave d'artiste or you know illustrated books yeah. or whatever um, so they were active and then I remember getting this phone call and this guy saying I forget his name now it's years ago he says it looks like the, you know it's just going to hit the fan uh, you better get that book to us right away, because it may not it may not be going on. And then, then it just got smaller and smaller, and then, and then became they amalgamated the two. And uh, I don't know what they're what's happened. I don't hear anything about them. Yeah. We've gone through a, the history of the Shanty Bay Press. We've tried to dig into your psyche a little bit. We've looked through your your life history, the output of the press. We've looked at advice to people who would like to get into this field we haven't told them how to buy your books oh so let's tell them how to do that we have a website and they can just contact us through our website shanty bay press yeah just yeah if they did yeah this ca.com dot com okay dot com and it'll it'll have the contact information and it has a reasonably good description of the books and with pictures and everything and we do send out books on approval it's risky but we do it we never have any problem because they're expensive they're cheap or inexpensive yeah. <laughs> when you consider how much has gone into yeah. them. Great. Well, I hope that some of the people that are listening to this will uh, get on that internet and uh, we have sold the move book, them off the shelf. Thank you for uh, sharing a bit of yourself. And You're welcome. And what you've been doing. It's, it's wonderful to be here and to see and touch what uh, you've done. Thank you. Oh, You're welcome. Thank you. I've been speaking with Walter Bashinsky, who is a partner in the Shanty Bay Press, publishers most recently of a selection of stories from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Thanks again. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you.